meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The ancient city is locked up tight. The massive gates are barred and bolted, and the people eagerly await the arrival of the king. The city watchman peers through the dust and haze, eyes shielded from the glare, and then in a a speck in the distance. The glint of armour, horses' hooves kicking up the dust. And in the midst of it all, David, King David. And the cry goes up, growing louder and louder. Here he comes! Here he comes! Throw wide the gates. Lift up the ancient doors. The king is coming. The king is coming. Just like that moment you may remember at the royal wedding. Just at the church door, when the fanfare sounded. Rich and rounded music filled the ancient chapel, lifting the spirits, lifting the heart, and everyone just knew someone special this way comes we've maybe got a bit cosy with God a bit casual with God God, my old chum, my old mate 
Perhaps that chumminess, that emphasis on the, the nearness and approachability of God, was a reaction against a, a pompous and aloof tone. A too rich overlay of sumptuous splendor that distracted us and distanced us from him and him from us in an unhealthy and unhelpful way. The God of the Victorian church, cold and overbearing and rather terrifying. However, that modern danger of overfamiliarity can blind us to a proper sense of the, the otherness and the sublime and holy character of the God we worship. The God we worship because he is Lord and King. Lord of all being, throned afar. And all those other titles that used to have currency and meaning for different generations, previous generations, those generations who built the great cathedrals of staggering majesty precisely to remind us of our smallness and to quieten our hearts before the almost forgotten grandeur of God, whose greatness is a, a reality we must acknowledge, not a, a made-up notion, a manufactured construct that is imposed on us. So if we want to know what God is really like, we mustn't forget that in, with, and under all the love, all that forgiveness, all that tender grace and mercy, we are due him our loyalty and our commitment because he is King and Lord. And we need to be in no doubt of what is expected of us by our King and Lord. When we Presbyterians strip our churches of our, and our ritual and our conversation of anything that might remind us of the truth that Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we need to remind ourselves to be sure to hold on tight to that truth and honour that reality lest our worship become too casual, our understanding seem to lead us almost to make God less than he is. As a reaction against the over-ornate Baroque splendor, gold and brass and silver and paintings and statues and icons, the Protestant Reformation preferred simplicity, bare, spare, clutter-free Christianity, which they hoped would bring us up close and personal with God, not distanced by roped-off high altars and ornate screens and grandiose ornamentation. Yet we know when we visit the Church of Christ the King in Liverpool or Notre Dame in Paris or Canterbury Cathedral or even the Cathedral of Saint-Pierre here in Geneva, we find we are reminded in such places of things we might forget. The greatness of God and the smallness of humanity. The worthiness of God to receive our best artistic endeavour. Buildings of breathtaking beauty. Stained glass of heart-stopping artistry. Music to make your very soul tremble. Nothing but the best for the King of Kings. And standing or sitting or kneeling, humbled by these displays of 
deepest devotion. We are required to remember truths that in the austere simplicity of our worship we might mislay. Remember, the soaring arches tell us, remember. Don't forget the vaulted ceilings and the massive pillars remind us that this God we praise, whose love we celebrate, whose praises we sing, this is the creative power behind all things. His holiness forces us to admit our sinfulness. This Christ we serve and honour has conquered death and sent the powers of darkness scattered and scurrying into oblivion and holds the very keys of heaven. So every stone, every note sung, every pane of glass, every piece of church furniture is designed to remind us not to get too cosy and too comfortable and too pally not to assume too much familiarity, lest we find our spirit scalded by the touch of his truth. His white-hot love too hot to handle. Well, maybe at this point the rampant Republicans in our midst are squirming and uncomfortable because they don't feel that these images, these metaphors, these symbols are much to their egalitarian taste. Talk of kings and royalty and allegiance. Reeks of a past that has no place in today's world. And the idea that we would kneel and do obeisance to anyone is alien and difficult. It speaks of a triumphalism that is dangerous and inappropriate and unhelpful. And certainly there have been bad kings and queens. And the psalmist speaks from a highly idealised understanding of kingship where nobility and wisdom and courage, responsibility and integrity are the hallmarks. And nothing is said about the darker possibilities of ego and abuse of power and costly ambition. This can all undermine any positive elements in the notion of kingship. But we need to go with the poetry we need to go with the poetry and understand that the way to use the metaphor requires that we see these two aspects of Christ's kingship that we read of. The kingship which is both real and yet not of this world. He is king by right. He didn't pick up a crown on the battlefield by accident. He didn't plot and murder to gain the throne. He's not king by some convoluted set of historical circumstances. He is king by right of who he is. Because of his creative power. Because of his holiness. Because of his nature and being. And because of his kingly generosity and mercy. For this is where the true greatness of kings and queens is found. Not in power wielded with ruthless, unbending self-regard, but with compassion and justice and clear thinking. Not throwing your weight around because you can, but using power to make things better. Not exploiting power for self-aggrandizement, but using power to fix things in people's lives. So that for all that it is his by right... Christ reveals his kingship through humility. The 
king who washes feet. The king who reaches out to the leper. The king whose throne is a wooden cross and whose crown is a crown of thorns. A feast he serves is of bread and wine. A wooden table spread. A meal of wine and bread. So perhaps even our most ardent Republican can find merit and meaning in this model of kingship. The servant king. The servant king. Which, of course, in turn begs the question, where are we in all of this? How bolted and barred are the doors of our heart? How eager are we to throw wide the gates, lift high the doors, and let the king, the rightful king, enter our story and reign in our heart? For there's a whole world of difference between an academic abstract agreement if even a reluctant one that yes there is truth in this metaphor, this narrative and yes I see what you mean about Christ the King and I understand why they built the cathedrals and why the icons are covered with gold there's a huge difference between the recognition that yes in terms of his nature and his character and his actions and his love the idea that Christ is King is a valid one. There's a world of difference between that and our giving our allegiance to him, pledging our loyalty to his service. It's simple, really. Christ the King looks into our heart and asks the question, Am I your king, though? Am I your king? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing together our next hymn. A beautiful hymn in preparation for the sacrament. It's number 662. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts. 662. Six,